Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Build Podcast. I'm Devin McDonald, a partner here at OpenView. For those of you who aren't familiar, OpenView is a venture capital firm based in Boston, and we invest exclusively in B2B expansion stage software companies. Each week, I'll be interviewing different leaders from top tech companies about the first 100 days pertaining to some major pivot or change within their organization. Now, pricing is a huge topic of conversation for companies at the expansion stage. Most companies know that there is a, an opportunity to make improvement, but this can be a very anxiety-ridden experience to make a change that could somehow upset your customers or affect your win rate with future customers. Today, we have Brad Coffey joining us, who serves as the Chief Strategy Officer at HubSpot, and he has led two major pricing initiatives in recent years. Most of the lessons that Brad gathered from pricing updates took months, even years to play out. However, Brad explained to me in a recent conversation that there is certainly a set of best practices pertaining to those first 100 days that would make for a great podcast. And here we are today. Brad, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So want to talk about pricing today. And I know HubSpot has gone through a couple of major pivots over the years, want to talk originally about your role at HubSpot and how it's evolved over the years and how you've gotten involved with pricing strategy. Sure. So uh, I've been at HubSpot since the early days when it was just a few of us sitting in a room and uh, pricing wasn't really a pricing strategy at all. We had one price point and that was it. And we all debated it constantly over time, but really focused mostly on our go-to-market operations then. Spent some time in product, ran product for a few years. Uh, Now I'm the chief strategy officer where I do our strategic planning, which often includes pricing, especially as you kind of look out into the future, uh, as well as our business and corporate development. How the pricing in particular came about is is kind of interesting, and I suspect something that a lot of companies go through where, you know, there isn't a dedicated person to pricing for a long time. And if there is one, it's the CEO. And what we would do is spend a lot of time sitting around a conference room trying to debate it. We, you know, even sign sort of the board when we made a decision and then just a couple of days later come back and, and try to renegotiate it again. So, you know, it wasn't until we actually had to try to find sort of a neutral voice, someone who could kind of break up some of those uninspired compromises that I really took it on in a more direct and full-time role. Makes sense. So let's go back to that point in time when you had the first major pricing change. You know, where did the idea come from and how are you sort of getting, how are you getting the rest of the business bought in? When we started, I think like many companies, we, we sort of picked a price point out of thin air. It was $250 a month. You know, why it was 250 and not $150 or $300, who knows? But we know we wanted to charge something and that was a key point of us getting feedback on the product and making sure that people stuck around and actually wanted to pay it and we we're delivering enough value. And as we got bigger, we came out with a second product and made it two times that and came up with a third product and made it three times that. And that was kind of as simple as it was. And what really sort of sparked a bigger review of that was actually going through some of the fundraising process. It turns out that venture capitalists like yourself are pretty clueful folks. And, and what was helpful is, you know, you look at a lot of companies. And so when you look at our numbers, you looked at our metrics, you know, there are parts of our business that we thought we were doing really well with. We had a pretty good story. We were acquiring customers. Actually, our customer retention was pretty good, but fundamentally, we weren't actually getting many upgrades. It was a bit of a union economics problem where there was sort of like one sort of number that you could circle on the whole thing that was like, ah, we need to find a way to make sure that we're growing and, and frankly, getting having our price grow to match the value we were delivering. And you know, with our previous pricing model, we just weren't doing it at all. And that sent us down a path to really review how we were thinking about it and uh, did a little bit of soul searching. 
So who was involved? I know you were sort of, you were leading the initiatives, really spearheading it, but who else did you get involved as you were thinking through, you know, how to evaluate where the pricing strategy should go? Yeah, at, the, at this time, so this is about 2010, 2011. So we we were big, hundreds of employees, but not so big that you couldn't have these conversations with sort of most of the folks on the executive team and certainly the folks that led product and you know, our founders. And I think there are two major data points that led to sort of where we ended up. One was a big analysis on that retention and really trying to dive into what parts of the product were most valuable to us. I think a huge input was as we look, can we correlate retention, can we correlate people sticking around, you know, getting value out of the product to usage of certain parts of our product? And it turned out there are parts of our product that we were selling uh, that had a lot of sizzle. They really, they really sparked in a demo process, but then actually if you started using them, you kind of use them for a couple months and then go away. And there are other parts of our product that were harder to sell, harder to set up. But once you actually started doing that, you actually stayed with us a really long time. And it was very clear we were delivering a lot of value there. And as we analyzed that and as we looked at it, we realized that was fundamentally contacts. Once you got the contacts into the system, that you're sticking around more, that you're actually getting more value out of the system, as I keep saying, that was key. And so there was a sort of that data point that we're really stuck to. And then on the other side of it, you know, we would look out in the market and understand how some of our competitors were pricing, how customers were used to paying for this product. And it was a little different than our really simple pricing at the time. And, you know, through that process, I started to really craft a vision for what it might turn out to be and then try to get feedback, feedback from everywhere, feedback from our peers, feedback from customers, feedback from all the employees. We posted it to our internal wiki and had a rousing debate there on what we should do, settling on a decision. So you really led this initiative and you were having conversations. Were you leveraging any external resources or was it you sort of interviewing all these different folks to gather the feedback? Yeah, we drove it internally this time. Certainly, there are a lot of friends and, and folks outside of HubSpot who are really influential throughout the process. We're good friends with the Price Intelligently guys here in town who are always very thoughtful about this stuff. But we were, you know, we were at a stage where we needed to have a lot of internal focus on it. So, you know, we had access to our customers and we get feedback there. Uh, you know, I'm a big believer that you know, a high fidelity mockup is worth worth a lot, and so we try to get as detailed as we can about what the pricing page would look like and try to show it to everyone that would talk to me. And that worked really well for us to make sure we got the feedback. And it was, it was still a little nerve wracking, but turned out that that was a pretty valuable process. When you were talking to your customers or potential prospects out there and showing them that pricing page and kind of walking them through what you were thinking, what were the questions you were asking to really kind of pull from them what their willingness to pay would be or you know, what structure they felt most comfortable with? I think that's a great question. And I typically try to break those two apart a little, actually. So in terms of the specific price points, a lot of that came down to benchmarking who we were competitive with. And so when we were in a competitive process, who are we losing deals to and understanding what their price point was and ensuring that if nothing else, especially as a startup that we were coming underneath them, you know, I didn't want to ever be in a spot where we were losing deals to somebody that we thought we were sort of either peers with or we wanted a market we wanted to be in because of price in those early days. But more importantly, when we then talk to customers, I really want to understand how they expect to pay for the product. I think oftentimes when we talk about pricing, there's a lot of sort of, you know, when internally we think about it every day, 
you know, so I, I can make something really complex because I understand the ins and outs of it. And I can understand and talk to my other employees who spend all day talking about it. But if you're going to talk to a customer who, you know, maybe does this once a year or is entering into a new purchase of an, uh, a new category and they've never really thought about it before, it's important to get back from them sort of what their value access is and how they would expect to pay for it. And so that's when we start talking about some of our pricing changes. We really want to try to pull that from our customers and try to put them on the spot around how would you think about certain trade-offs? Got it. So 100 days leading up to this, this big change within the business, how was HubSpot preparing? What were the different groups doing between sales and, and product marketing, et cetera? I'm assuming there were a lot of moving parts here. Yeah, there were. And it's what was interesting is we ended up running this fundamentally through a weekly meeting. That was a, a good process for us because then the answer to everything was pretty straightforward. Is either, yes, I know the answer and here's what it is, or no, I don't, and we'll put it on the agenda next week, right? And so like everything kind of de-stressed the whole situation. But what was fascinating is who was important to attend that meeting in the 100 days leading up to it and even you know shortly thereafter. At first, it was, it was a lot of product and a lot of finance, ensuring that we had the model in place right, and especially product folks who had to deliver on the packaging or deliver on the mechanics of this. They really need to own it, you know, and it's not so much... I even hate to use sort of the, the term getting them on board with it. Really, they need to be able to own it and drive it and feel like they can have a big impact on it. So you had to spend a lot of time with product. And as you get closer, product's underway, it's in beta, and you're, they're kind of execution mode. So they don't need to show up quite as often. But then it becomes product marketing. So then you're talking about how are we going to position this? How are we going to, what kind of promotions are we going to run? How are we going to create sort of momentum and, and announce uh, the pricing to the extent that you want to announce a pricing change? And so that was kind of right up into the actual launch. And they're part of our training our sales team on it and making sure their education was there. So there's a very sort of product marketing centric meeting. And then afterwards, it's, it's interesting. It shifts to services in a lot of ways. Suddenly you're rolling this out to your existing install base. People are coming up for renewal. You know, maybe it's tied. In, in this case, we're, we're changing the pricing on our core product. But even as we price new products, you know, it's often migrating or rolling out those new products afterwards. And so it's a very services-oriented group. But we would always keep that cadence throughout and make sure that we had some of those ties. And anyone that was interested, anyone that wanted to learn more about what we were doing or had questions could come and attend. Was there a lot of internal debate? Did you get a lot of people sort of pushing back on this concept of switching things up? Or was everyone pretty much aligned and ready to move forward? Absolutely had debate, still have debate over every pricing change we make. You know, we've got a little bit of a philosophy at HubSpot that is, I think, stole a little bit from Amazon, which is disagree and commit. And, and one of the things I like about HubSpot is we'll have big debates and everyone's encouraged to have a voice, they can respond. We try to be as transparent as possible. People can comment on it. They can come to the meetings if they want. And we have a, a loud, boisterous debate. But at some point, we need to make a decision so we're not just thrashing on it entirely. And so we get to this point where we decide, hey, we're going to make a decision and it's going to be done. And even if you disagree, it's your responsibility to speak up and to let us know that you disagree. But it's also once we make a decision to really get on board. And that's just not lip service, but really get on board and try to make this as best good experience for our customers as possible. And so, yes, uh, there's always debate on pricing. It's hard to get it perfect, especially in a, a SaaS model where it's a subscription and pricing that you change now impacts all of the customers you've sold in the past. But it's something that we, we folks would end up getting on board with and, and help execute on. What kept you up at night leading up to the big day where you were going to make this official change or this announcement? 
This, this one was tough because, as I mentioned earlier, we, we'd done a lesson research and, and found that as customers add contacts specifically to HubSpot, that it was very valuable, that they stuck around longer. And I had this voice in the back of my head that was like, let me get this straight, Brad. You want customers to add contacts to HubSpot. So you're going to start charging them to add contacts to HubSpot and actually increase their price when they add more? Isn't that going to completely disincentivize them to do the exact thing you want them to do. And that was a little terrifying, <laughs> if uh, I'm not going to lie. But it actually turned out to be great. I think it was particularly because we have an inside sales model. And you know, one of the big changes that happened as we moved from just pure additions to additions with this, this contact-based pricing was, A, that the market expected it. You know, this is how market often bought this type of product. But two, because we were pricing on it, every single sales rep needed to articulate why we were doing it, articulate the value of having contacts in HubSpot and product needed to build and deliver on that value. And so created through the pricing change, just an immense amount of alignment from our marketing positioning to our sales, to our services and onboarding into the product development organizations that it turned out to really work well for us. How did you think about whether or not to grandfather in existing customers? That's, that is a great debate. I think my philosophy and our philosophy is we want to be very generous with our existing customers. You know, the perspective I take is I really want to focus on making that next customer we sign up or the next cohort of customers that we sign up have as great in economics as possible. And then when I look at my existing customers, the ones who have been with us since the beginning, the ones who have kind of been through you know, the product evolution in times where we probably weren't, weren't as smart or as good as we are today, I want to be as generous as possible. So we've always had a very forgiving grandfathering policy. You know, and in this case, you know, we allowed customers who had bought the product on a flat price to keep that price going forward until they wanted to churn. And so they could keep it and they were grandfathered in. I think that's not... Maybe not the right move for all companies at all situations, but you know, especially where we were lucky enough to be growing pretty quickly that you know, as that install base churned away a little bit over time and as we added more and more customers, over time the economics really shifted more towards having the bulk and eventually all of our customers onto the contact tier pricing, uh, which was pretty successful. And you know, and our customers, I think, felt, felt rewarded for being with us in the early parts and felt like they got a pretty good deal, which, which made me happy. So the pricing change is finally implemented. You know, you've done a great job explaining to us the 100 days leading up to it. If we look at sort of the 100 days post, post this change, or even that, that first quarter after, what were the results? What were some of the unintended consequences or surprises? So I, I think I mentioned one where I was, I think, probably one of the worked better than I expected was sort of this alignment it drove throughout the organization, you know, where we started really focusing on delivering that value in the contacts. It produced alignment and, you know, had the incentives correct for for sales and for marketing and for services in a way that worked a lot better, particularly because we were an inside sales B2B company. And I'm, I'm not totally sure what apply in other B2C or, or consumer products, but worked incredibly well for us. The other part that really worked well is it turned out that we were right, that, you know, by changing this pricing, that the new cohorts and new customers that were going to come on, were going to have dramatically better economics. And yes, we were only bringing on sort of small, small groups at a time and grandfathered everyone into their preferred price. So it took time to catch up, but we would run our analysis and run a lot of our internal metrics on 
sort of the grandfathered folks in, the new folks and the new pricing. And we could just see that the new folks were so strong and had such a better economics that the rest of the business and the overall average was going to catch up over time. And so we continued to really bet hard on it. And if I kind of reflect back, you know, at the time in 2011, we had about a low 70% customer retention and maybe two or 3% upgrades. So call it maybe 75% overall revenue retention. And then I fast forward to when we IPO in 2014, we had more of a 85, you know, low 80s customer retention because people were all importing contacts and we knew that was really valuable for them. So sticking around more just on a customer basis. But then we were also getting 15% upgrades to almost 100% revenue retention at that time. So it was dramatically, dramatically better business. A lot of things happened at the same time. Product got like fundamentally massively better over those years too. So it wasn't all the pricing change, certainly. But I think it had a, a big impact and very proud of the results it had. Well, it sounds like it really changed the trajectory of the business. So very impressive story there. I want to pivot to talk about the freemium model and the freemium product that HubSpot released a, a while back. At what point did the business decide, you know what, this is something that we're going to consider and we want to further pursue? What were those conversations looking like internally? And at what point in time? Just refresh us. So HubSpot's history, we had a marketing product sold with the inside sales team. And so that was true when we made some of the changes here in 2011 I talked about all the way up through 2014, as I said, when we went public. And about that time, we had a big decision to make was, do we stay in the footprint that we've had? We just, we just rebuilt the entire product. We stay in that footprint and go up to the enterprise and try to charge you know, 10x what we do today and try to go big some of those big accounts. Or do we stay in the market that we're having some success in? And do we go wide? Do we move into sales? Do we move into customer success eventually? Do we go wide? and try to become sort of a full front office platform and chose the latter. Uh, and as we stepped into it, realized at the same time that our customers were changing, you know, millennials were deeply into the workforce by then, you know, many of them were like ourselves, wanted to try products, wanted to use products. You know, we looked at companies like Atlassian and we're, we're super impressed with their go-to-market model and what they're doing. And, and realized that when we moved from marketing to sales, this is a this was an opportunity not just to move into an adjacent category with the same business model, but can we actually move over there and try something really radically new? Sort of rare opportunities to do that in a business. And can we enter that market in, in a freemium way? And we had a lot of lessons learned and a lot of small pivots within there, but that was really it. We decided to go into sales. And as we did that, decided to start there with a freemium model versus the inside sales model that we started with on the core marketing side. So I'm going to ask the same question again, 100 days leaning up to the launch of this new free product. What was the business doing? What were these different business groups responsible for to make sure this would be a successful launch? Yeah, this one was really different for us. Whereas contact your pricing was something that was going to impact every customer and every deal we brought in and, and therefore virtually every employee we had in the business. What we did when we moved to freemium was we carved out a small group of, of frankly, our very best people, some of our best engineers, our best product folks, our best sales reps, our, our best service folks, and tried to get an all-star team that could really focus on this and have a really tight feedback loop and let them figure it out. It was a completely new motion for us. And so the, the 100 days leading up to it, and, and maybe even a little bit more, was really around how can we carve out this group and give them a lot of ownership and autonomy to go try to figure this out for us. And so, yes, we would check in on it, I would say, but I think you'd probably be shocked to hear 
how little insight into the executive team that we even had to it. You know, we didn't want it to be the sort of thing where every executive was tossing their pet rock into the design of the CRM or everyone was kind of lobbying in their opinions. We needed the folks that we had entrusted to run the product uh, and the project to really own it. And so we did. And that was probably the most, in one way, the most effective parts of that where, you know, they could just move and make decisions really, really quickly. That's interesting. So you isolated it within a, a certain group of folks internally that you knew were sort of the experts that could really run with it. And very different from the last pricing change, as you had mentioned, because so many people were involved and it affected so many customers. In light of that, you know, I know that there was a team responsible, but you were certainly a part of that group. What were you most worried about? Probably a different set of fears this time around. Yeah, it was nice that we were doing this in a market that we didn't have, that we weren't as nervous about cannibalizing ourselves, which is obvious, was just uh, often the thing I talked about pe- with people when they're deciding to move to freemium or trying to lower their prices and, and compete against sort of entrance from below. We didn't have an existing revenue stream there. So anything that we got was kind of net positive. You know, I think the things that, you know, maybe not as nervous about, but the lessons that we learned is we probably went a little too far sort of win the independence and the autonomy. Uh, There are parts of, we sort of invested in a few different freemium motions at the same time. And some of them were going after a different persona on a different tech stack with a different brand name. And you're like, well, okay, that's that's probably a little too far away. And so over time, we we brought some of them back. We ended up putting everything onto the same platform, same tech stack so that if you did use all of our products, they they looked the same, they felt the same, they worked incredibly well together. We all brought them all back under the HubSpot brand and made sure that you know, as you tried some of our freemium products, you were aware of the other products that we could sell to you. And we started trying to make sure they focused on the same persona. So we, we brought a few of them back over time, which was probably one of the things that I would have done sooner if we could. But you know, some of those lessons that we learned by making it independent are invaluable today in parts of what we're betting our entire business on right now, actually. So there's sort of two sides of that fence, but I think we found a good uh, a good balance there and, and overall it worked really well. Given that for this freemium product and it being so sales-oriented, I'm sure marketing was, you know, really investing a lot of time into figuring out that new persona that they would be targeting. What was going into that? What was the marketing team focusing on to make sure that this would be a success? Yeah, I think it was interesting for us as we we broke out the marketing team to work with this independent group as well. And so we had our core go-to-market model was continuing to grow and improve and change, but especially where it wasn't just, we weren't trying to generate the same types of leads. We're trying to generate users to a software. It was a pretty different motion. And so our marketing team, was absolutely doing a lot of the same mechanics, but with dramatically different results. And that would take them in different directions. So when they researched their customers, there are certain channels that would work really well and certain channels that weren't. When they did their persona development, there are certain channels that was resonating in, which were pretty different than our marketing side. What was nice by having having their own budget and a lot of independence is that they could kind of let that take them where it did to make sure that they're still executing. And so we, we learned a lot of lessons there so that when we did try to bring everything back together into one budget, that we could take the parts that were working, leave behind some of the parts that weren't, and really give it some of the boost and the value from the, the broad reach that we have in our, our core business. And I know this podcast is very much about you know the first 100 days, but realistically, just so our audience has a gauge for how long this took and how many people were involved, how long did it take to really kind of get this freemium product together and launched? 
and how many people were on that group that were sort of developing it internally? I think that's a really interesting question. It was a small group and it was done, I would say, quickly. And by quickly, I mean, our, you know, from the time where we were like, you know, we should have something in sales to having something in market was six months which to me is incredibly impressive to a real live working piece of software that, that people can use and adopt and, and frankly loved. It's our CRM is probably, you know, one of the best pieces of software we've ever built. And so that was incredible to me, but you know, and so when you talk about the sort of the launch of it in a hundred days, you could use that as a data point, but whew, there were so many post launches, changes, iterations, developments that, I mean, that was 2014, 2015, it's 2018. It still feels like it's that we have work to do that we're trying to figure it out and, and we're iterating and, and not afraid to question ourselves every month, every year. And so, so yeah, I, I'm, in my opinion, it was more than a hundred days. It felt like, but it was still quick, but it never, and it never stops. Uh, you're continuing to try to, to make those launches and make those changes over time. Question for you. It sounds like this had a great impact on the business, but really want to sort of ask you, how did this change HubSpot, this launch of this freemium product? So it really changed, uh, had a huge impact on the business. You know, we talked about in the early part of the podcast that we had three products for most of our history, a basic or prone enterprise and, and some pricing off of that. And it's really shifted us dramatically more towards a business that can lead with a free product. Instead of just getting our content, you can actually start to use and engage with our product Instead of having to go through a full demo to understand what we can do, you can actually use the product yourself and upgrade and kind of touchlessly buy more. And so it's really shifted our frame of reference internally. It's it's just allowed us to have a bigger impact on the world with what we're excited about. We hear more and more from our customers and our users about the value they're seeing. We do some NPS results that get sort of funneled into our Slack channel that we're seeing kind of constantly. We get about like one every 10 minutes. And it's just so much fun to watch and see all these people all around the world that are using our product and being successful with it. And so just from a pure, are we impacting users and customers what we want? It's worked incredibly well. And then on the other side of it, the economics have been great. You know, we've been able to take that free distribution and find new ways to upgrade them as they want to get more leads into their CRM. They can buy our marketing product. They want to engage with their CRM more. They can buy our sales enablement product. And it's been just, uh, it's been a big success for us, actually. And I'm, I'm very, very proud of the team for it. What's the future of the freemium product? Are you going to continue, I would assume, to evolve it? Any things that you can let on to us about what might be coming down the road? What's been interesting, we've been around for about 10 years now. The early part of our history was really around being a, a single product company. We're in the midst of what we kind of think about as, as phase two, which is, Becoming a suite of apps. You know, we've got a marketing product, a sales product. Uh, we announced a customer success product last fall, all built on top of this sort of foundation of a free CRM that's working really, really well for us. And I expect that to last a couple more years. We'll, we'll see what other products we can develop, but we'll continue to lean heavily into that motion and continue to lead with a free CRM that we we hope can get tons of adoption and then eventually really want to open that up, want to turn that into a platform and something that others can develop on top of, be it something that users can take with them as they learn and as they try to grow, as their business tries to grow and think really as broadly as we can about how can we enable millions of businesses to grow, to get more business, to grow personally, to grow their education, to grow 
professionally and really try to, to do everything we can to make that work. Excellent. So I'm going to pivot here slightly. I'm going to ask you two questions that aren't related to pricing, but would be, uh, I think, interesting to sort of fill in our audience in on. So when you were just a young lad, uh, I'm sure you didn't necessarily think that you were going to be working at HubSpot as the chief strategy officer one day. What did you envision yourself being when you were when you were oh, a, as kid? a kid? Jeez. I think if I went way back, I absolutely thought I'd be into sports. Uh, both my parents are into athletics one way or another. My mom's an athletic director. My dad ran a sporty goods store for years. So I thought I was very into coaching and sports, but was always sort of drawn and interested in computers at the same time. And, you know, loved to love to build games on my TI-85 back in high school and, you know, went to college, ended up uh, majoring in computer science. And so it was, a, it was a sort of an interesting juxtaposition there. And, and what I found, I think, as my career went on that I'm a pretty competitive person uh, by personality. I think most of the folks around HubSpot would tell you that. And, you know, that's a lot of that is what used to appeal to me in athletics um, was sort of that competitive nature and being able to focus on it. And, you know, and in the right places at the right time at, at work, you know, you can get some of those same things. You know, there's there's competition out there, whether it's trying to close a deal or whether it's trying to figure out how to compete with another company and I can apply some of the same discipline and the hard work and the things, you know, I'm a big believer in sort of controlling things you can control. And it could apply that to, in the professional setting in, in, in a really rewarding way. My next question. So you obviously know this season, this first podcast season for OpenView is all about the first 100 days. As you think about other people that we should be hosting on this season, what businesses stand out to you? What business out there has, has done something that's very bold or has gone through some major change where it would be potentially interesting to learn about uh, what they did, how they prepared to lead up to that big transformation? Yeah, so, so two businesses that uh, we really admire at HubSpot are Atlassian and Shopify. They're, they're two peers for us, and, and there are probably other examples. But, you know, those are two businesses that have grown, you know, in Atlassian's case, have gotten to hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue with virtually no salespeople and kind of moved from one product to multiple products and, and iterated through that, seeing some tough competition in some of their markets. And so just incredibly impressed with them and their team and what they've built and how automation and R&D and product oriented they are. Uh, and then the other is Shopify, incredibly impressed with what they've built. Just the level of innovation there around not just trying to build a piece of software that allows people to sort of host uh, e-commerce sites on the web, but thinking very broadly about how can we allow people to have more products to show? How can we get into billing and let them to process credit cards through the system? How can we make sure that they can resell their wares on Amazon and some of the partnerships they've done? There's a lot of you know, some of the acquisitions they've done, a lot of really brilliant things that I think both those companies have done that I'm sure would make some very interesting podcast content. Yeah, I like the idea of Shopify. Um, perhaps it's the first 100 days leading up to launching a big, big new partner. Um, that could be an interesting one. So I will take that as a personal challenge to reach out to someone at, at Shopify and see if we can get them featured on a coming uh, podcast. Well, thank you so much, Brad. This has been incredibly interesting today, hearing about these two major pricing pivots for the business. And congrats on your success and, and HubSpot's success. Yeah, thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. 
Thank you so much for tuning in today. We will be back next week with a brand new podcast for you. Please make sure that you subscribe on iTunes or anywhere else that you're listening to podcasts. And please sign up for our newsletter. You can join on openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.